The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, September 15th, 1893. I'm Sally Helm. Imagine a frog living at the bottom of a well. So begins a fable told by a monk on a stage in Chicago. This is a Friday afternoon session at something called the Parliament of World Religions, an unprecedented gathering of leaders from many different faiths. The monk speaking, Swami Vivekananda, is Hindu from Calcutta, India. And the nearly 4,000 people listening are mostly American and mostly Protestant Christian. Vivekananda's speech today wasn't on the official agenda. He tells the audience, and I'm paraphrasing, so there's this frog living in that well, thinking it's the whole entire world. But then one day, another frog hops in beside him. Where are you from? The well frog asks. And the other frog says, I'm from the ocean. The well frog doesn't know what that is. And he asks, how big is the ocean? Is it as big as my well? The ocean frog thinks that's funny. He's like, you can't even compare this well to the ocean. But the well frog takes offense at that. There can't be anything bigger than my well, he says. This other frog is a liar. Get him out of here. And that, Vivekananda says at the end of his speech, has been the difficulty all the while. This fable describes a tension that has been running through this whole parliament. The audience, Vivekananda is implying, has been living in a religious well, but thinking it's the ocean. Today, an historic gathering of religions. What happens when tension among religious leaders from around the world unfolds in front of thousands of American spectators? And how does this parliament help broaden the country's understanding of religion? The Parliament of World Religions happened towards the end of a major national event, the six-month-long Chicago World's Fair. And with all that was happening at that fair, it's kind of surprising that the parliament ends up being as popular as it is. The fair showcased the latest in technology and inventions. On display were things like the first mechanical dishwasher, the first zipper, the first Ferris wheel, Food products we know today, like Quaker Oats, Juicy Fruit Gum. Some records claim the first modern hamburger was shown there. The whole thing is more formally known as the Columbian Exposition. To celebrate 400 years since the quote-unquote discovery of America by Columbus. Professor Eric Zielkowski teaches religious studies at Lafayette University. And he says, this fair was a massive event. Some quick facts. More than 50 nations participated. The number of visitors, 27 million. That approaches half the population of the United States at the time. Almost half the country shows up at the fair. When they get there, they walk around a complex of buildings showcasing all that technology. It's called the White City. The buildings were built of a material that was bright white and so celestial, some people compared it to heaven on earth. There's also a whole section of the fair just outside the White City called the Bazaar of Nations. 
it was this long strip that was filled with fake villages or sites representing mostly non-Western peoples from around the world. Professor Zielkowski told us the way this is all set up, with those fake villages leading into the celestial white city, it sends a not-so-subtle message that Western culture, and specifically the United States, is superior to other nations and cultures from around the world. I think from our early 21st century perspective, there's no question that we would consider it very demeaning, frankly, to, to some of these cultures that were represented. But at the time, you know, it was a huge draw. Seven miles north of the White City and the Bazaar of Nations, in the newly built Chicago Art Institute, a whole other part of the Columbian Exposition is playing out. There's this series of congresses, meetings, where people from around the world who share an interest or expertise can talk, swap ideas, There's the World's Congress of Architects, a Congress on City Government, a Congress on Birds, the World's Columbian Dental Congress, and then a Congress so grand it is actually called a Parliament, the Parliament of the World's Religions. The idea was how can we have this fair showing off materialist triumph but ignoring spiritual dimension of human life. And that's where the parliament comes into play. Planning for the parliament got started about two years before the Columbian Exposition even began. The guy who initially has the idea is a Chicago lawyer named Charles Bonney. He actually dreams up the whole concept of those congresses. But he thinks that the one on religion is the most important. His idea is... People ought to try to understand not only the revelation of their own tradition, but as Bonnie put it, truly to know how God has revealed himself in the other. We talked about all this with Professor Diana Eck, who teaches comparative religion and Indian studies at Harvard University. She told us... That was a pretty radical idea, that the revelation of the divine might be through people of another faith than one's own. At the time, the vast majority of Americans are Protestant Christian, and many of them feel pretty confident that their religion is the right one. But Charles Bonney wants to look for some kind of universal religious truth in the hope that it might lead to a more peaceful world in which there was not this sense that if we're different, we must be at odds with one another. And that, of course, was a pretty enticing idea because history was simply full of the ways in which religion had become the sort of uh, battering ram of war and of the quest for supremacy. Bonnie enlists the help of a Presbyterian minister in Chicago, John Henry Barrows. Barrows is in his mid-40s, known as a powerful preacher, and together... They sent out some 10,000 invitations. Wow! um, uh, And, you know, sort of flung them about the world. Now, Barrows, like Bonnie, is interested in knowing the way that God has revealed himself in the other. But... As with Bonnie, he pretty much imagined God to be the God that he knew. I mean, how else could he imagine it? And even the language that he 
used in issuing the invitation to people across the world was language that was distinctly Christian. The first paragraph basically quotes from the Bible, all about how God has not left himself without witnesses, and we would like some of those witnesses to join us in Chicago for this parliament. I mean, they weren't trying to smuggle this language into the invitation, but this was the language that they understood. And of course, that becomes a bit of a tension in the parliament as well, because there are some of the attendees, Buddhist in particular, who don't think of God in that way at all. In fact, who don't really, quote, believe in God. Nevertheless, many of the people who get these invitations say yes. Not all 10,000, closer to 200. And it did represent a variety of people from Indic, from Hindu, from Buddhist, from Jain, Zoroastrian, Chinese, Confucian traditions. As well as Jewish participants, Muslim participants, and a lot of Christians from many, many denominations. There were some who didn't come, like the the Sultan of Turkey didn't come. We don't know whether he simply couldn't be bothered to come or whether he thought it was disgraceful to have such a thing, but he didn't come. There were Christian holdouts, too. The Archbishop of Canterbury said that he felt it was inappropriate for him and his station to come to a parliament of religions that put people on an equal footing and on the same platform as the major Christian denominations. And there were other Christians writing in from the mission fields that this was an abomination. Some Christians didn't like to think of their religion as just a vessel for universal truth. And holdouts aside, there are also some groups who are notably not invited to the parliament. I think the most important were native peoples of the United States of America at that point. I mean, this was, by the way, the same year in which uh, the frontier was declared to be closed, that settlement had extended all the way to the West Coast. And included in all of that settlement were literally hundreds of native tribes and peoples with their life ways that were certainly religious. But at the Columbian Exposition, they're seen only in that bazaar of nations. Not within the fold of the parliament at all. Many Black American churches are also excluded, and so are some of the nation's newest Christians, the Mormons, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the parliament is an unprecedented gathering of religious leaders. It's billed as a rare chance for people from vastly different worlds to meet and talk and represent what they think is best in their religious traditions. And in the lead up to the parliament's opening day in early September, people are interested. It was an exciting thing. I mean, there were people from virtually every walk of life, men and women, lots of women who showed up to listen eager, really, for what this big event would bring. 4,000 people show up for the Parliament's opening day, mostly white American Protestants. They're in a big, crowded hall. The spectators, plus the nearly 200 delegates from around the world. Later, the press will make a big thing about how colorful the clothing was. The delegates are wearing red, orange, gold, pink, pale green. They process up to the stage, some of them linking arms, some of them holding their country's flag. 
The proceedings open, interestingly, with a Christian prayer, the Lord's Prayer. In fact, all 17 days of the Parliament open that way, because the organizers thought of this as a universal prayer. But you can also look at it a different way. The very way that the sessions were conducted, they were kind of framed within a, a Christian or a Jewish Christian framework by opening it with the, the Lord's Prayer. Professor Zielkowski told us the organizers of the event, especially John Henry Barrows, were definitely open-minded to other religions. But Barrows also clearly thought that in the end, Christianity would come out on top. In a speech just before the parliament, he said that the event would offer, quote, a matchless opportunity of setting forth the distinctive truths of the Christian gospel. He believed that the many religions represented at the parliament had grains of truth, but that Christianity was the fulfillment of them all, meaning that all delegates would see their truths contained within Barrows's religion. So having all these religions showcased at the parliament... There was nothing threatening in his mind to Christianity about that because he thought that they would find themselves ultimately, once compared with Christianity, fulfilled in Christianity. Barrows's speech on the first day is certainly respectful to other religions, and it offers a soaring vision for the parliament. Here's Professor Eck again. Essentially, we were looking forward to one of the great events of humankind that humanity had been sundered by oceans and languages and diversity, but now is brought together. And you know, there's something very, very powerful about that. I mean, for idealists, you might say, of every generation. And yet, one of the most memorable speeches of the day doesn't come from Barrows. It comes from a relatively unknown Hindu monk named Swami Vivekananda. He delivered his very powerful, rather short speech that began Sisters and Brothers of America, and he hadn't gotten any farther than that. But this audience burst into applause um, for two minutes, for five minutes, perhaps. Professor Eck told us the audience seemed moved to be addressed as sisters and brothers by this person who they perceived as being from such a different world. When the applause dies down, Vivekananda continues his speech. And there's a section in it that Professor Zielkowski finds particularly important, where Vivekananda says that Hindus, quote, accept all religions to be true. That statement, you can imagine, would have been taken like a cannonball shot over the bow of Barrow's ship. Because, you know, he's openly defying this idea that the Protestant organizers had in mind that the truth of their religion would ultimately show through as kind of reigning supreme. And he's saying that from his Hindu point of view, all religions are accepted to be true. Already, things are not going quite as John Henry Barrows imagined. And it's only day one. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The day after the Parliament's big opening, the Chicago Tribune gives the event top billing. It runs several headlines stacked on top of each other. Parliament is opened. Words of love spoken. Representatives of all creeds gather in peace. A most inspiring scene. But the way the news story begins also hints at the fact that all of this mixing of people from around the world is a little shocking to the American audience. Quote, Under the banner of Common Hope met yesterday the strangest gathering of men the world has seen. As the parliament continues, thousands of American spectators continue to hear from people that they've never heard from before. A theosophist from Alabad, India. A bishop from the African Methodist Episcopal Church. A Russian prince. And almost 140 Christian speakers who don't always agree with each other. From the Protestant standpoint, this really was uh, sort of the beginnings of realizing among themselves just how very diverse they were. The differences among all the various religious traditions become clearer and clearer. For instance, some of the Buddhists, Soyan Shaku, who was Zen, and Dharmapala from Sri Lanka, which they then called Ceylon, they presented a different kind of challenge to people. They don't believe that God created the universe, for example. And this was very shocking to many people. Professor Zielkowski told us one of those Buddhist speakers, Anagarka Dharmapala, also took Barrows's idea that all these religions would be fulfilled in Christianity and turned it on its head. You know, he emphasized the point that the Buddha was teaching, as he presented it, many of the same moral principles that Jesus did, but centuries before Jesus. And so in a way, Jesus was kind of a follower of, of principles that, that the Buddha had already introduced to the world. In another speech, Swami Vivekananda will say something similar about Hinduism. He, he describes Hinduism as a, a kind of like almost a, a, you know, a religious sponge. I mean, it absorbs other religions rather than be threatened by them. And in that sense, they, they ultimately, they all find their place within Hinduism. Another of the Buddhist speakers, Hirai Kinzo from Japan, spoke sharply about what he saw as a perversion of Christian principles playing out in the United States itself. On the west coast of the United States, there were people who had placards that said, Japs must go. And this fellow said, well, you send your missionaries to Japan. You advise us to be moral and believe Christianity. At the same time, if this is your understanding of Christian charity, we are perfectly happy to remain pagans or to remain what you call heathens because we don't want any part of this. It becomes clear as the speeches go on that the speakers from Asia, especially the Hindu and Buddhist speakers, are having the biggest impact on the American audience. There are many people for whom those speeches were the primary thing that they remember about the Congress. Many of them had never heard anyone who practiced these religions speak about them in their own words. One speaker who gets an especially enthusiastic response is the Hindu monk Swami Vivekananda. Towards the end of the first week, he gets up and gives a speech that seems to summarize the general feeling in the room. 
a speech about a frog in a well who can't even imagine the sea. This, of course, is the difficulty with religions, that we are Hindus or we are Christians sitting in our own little well and imagining that that's the whole world. The parliament was an attempt to get beyond that. And it did resonate. On the 17th and final day, the crowd can't even fit into the building. More than 7,000 people try to attend. It's so popular that people are scalping tickets. Inside, the proceedings begin, as always, with the Lord's Prayer. A choir sings a few songs, and Barrows introduces the final speakers, including Vivekananda, who at this point is something of a celebrity. Professor Zielkowski said, if you read records from the time about Barrows's reaction to the parliament, you can see... Vivekananda clearly got under his skin because he, in a way, stole the show. You know, hands down, there's no question he was the, the rock star of the parliament. Vivekananda's final speech, in many ways, seems to reaffirm the whole project of the parliament. He says... The Parliament of Religions has proved that holiness, purity, and charity are not the exclusive possessions of any church in the world. A version of that original universal message that Barrows had wanted to send. But Vivekananda also says, If any dreams of the exclusive survival of his own religion and the destruction of the others, I pity him from the bottom of my heart. Zielkowski hears this as pointed, directed at Christian missionaries who have come to India, cautioning them not to try to stamp out the religion that is already there. The parliament crowd cheers Vivekananda one last time, the other speakers give their final addresses, and then this event, which has been the talk of the country, ends. And it's pretty much seen as a wild success. It was considered by many people, and this is no exaggeration, some people considered it one of the most important events in human history. One of the most obvious effects of the parliament is that it exposes a large segment of the U.S. population, mostly white Protestants, to new religious ideas, especially from Buddhism and Hinduism. In the year after the parliament, Vivekananda goes on a tour of the U.S. and opens various Hindu religious spaces that still exist today. Professor Eck told us that, among other things, he launched a significant interest in the U.S. for yoga. So yoga really got its start with the parliament and with others who came after. When Vivekananda goes back to India, he is incredibly popular there, too. He's still idolized today, in particular by many in India's far-right Hindu nationalist movements, who claim that you need to be Hindu to be truly Indian a message antithetical to the parliament's lofty vision of inclusion. And this is enormously destructive in India today. Back in the U.S. in the years after the event, there's no huge shift in religious life. But it is nevertheless true that some in the audience who listened to the speeches came away with a new perspective. And that shift felt important to them. One Protestant woman who attended the parliament later wrote a poem about the effect that these 17 days had on her. And it was entitled Aunt Hannah on the Parliament of Religions, written by one Minnie Andrews Snell. Snell is from the Midwest, and the poem is written in a stylized regional dialect. 
I'm glad enough I'm home again, can rest my weary brain. For I've seen and heard so much too much, I guess I've heard in vain. Snell talks about listening to the Buddhist speakers describe their way of life and its similarity to Christian teachings. Till I felt to lead a Christian life, a Buddhist I must be, and the parliament of religions brought religious doubt to me. Zielkowski said, This is kind of a nightmare scenario for those Christians who had hoped that at the parliament, their faith would be proven as the right one. Snell's poem even talks about the confusion she felt when seeing different Christian denominations disagree. When the Baptists spoke, the Presbyterians seemed to be fighting mad, till the Parliament of Religions made my poor old head feel sad. And so then the poem heads towards its end. It says, And let love be my motto, till I enter in the door of that great religious Parliament where creeds don't count no more. So, I mean, I, I, to, for my money, I mean, that poem captures, you know, so well the response of kind of average American Protestant who might have happened upon the parliament and, and hearing these forceful Asian speakers, you know, contradict a lot of their own presuppositions and throw them into doubt, but also into a more kind of open attitude towards them. That's true for many of the people who attended in person and for many more Americans who read about the parliament later in the press. Professor Eck told us the event laid the groundwork for future interfaith dialogue. And to her mind, it's still important to think about this 1893 encounter in Chicago, which left people like Minnie Andrews Snell so shaken up. Because I think it is one of the aspects of what we now call globalization, a kind of globalization of thought, a globalization of persons, an ability to see uh, beyond the little well in which we live. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. The associate producer was Emma Fredericks. History This Week is also produced by Ben Dickstein, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designers are Corey Choi and Pat Burke. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.